Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. From Fulfilled. Today I'm excited to be talking with the very experienced and highly regarded grant writing specialist Diane H. Leonard. Diane has successfully secured more than 60 million US dollars in competitive grant funds for its clients in federal governments, local and state governments, and private foundations. Diane is the founder and president of Diane H. Leonard Consulting and is also a scrum master for Agile Frameworks to Enhance Team Performance. Diane, welcome. Thank you. So tell us about the beginning of your fundraising journey. What were some key lessons you learned in those early years working within a fundraising team? Right. I'm like way back on the winding path. So I actually, my first job in fundraising, what I learned was I was uh, making cold phone calls for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And I was telling people they had been locked up and that they were gonna have to phone their friends during their lunch hour while they were locked up in a restaurant to help raise money for this organization. And what I learned is that I don't like cold call fundraising. That wasn't for me, (laughs) but it built a really thick skin, I would say, because I was getting rejected on the phone every day, multiple times. And so as my career progressed, while I understood individual fundraising and special events, What I learned is that uh, grant making, so the art of actually making grants was something I was really passionate about. So it's where I got to spend the beginning of my career. And I learned from those days, making those phone calls, being rejected, that, you know, those grantees, the people applying for the grants, they were really struggling to get accepted, to not get rejected. And so I wanted to really spend my time helping organizations apply for grants in a more meaningful way so that they didn't have that stress of being rejected, so that they didn't have the stress of uh, receiving funding in a way that wasn't quite right for them. And so when I think about the lessons, you know, everything, every action we take as a fundraiser, whether it was those phone calls, whether it was supporting large gala events, to me, it all comes down to what are the ways that fundraising lessons in an organization play across their different types of fundraising. So all those different interactions and the other types of fundraising brought me into and I apply with my work in grant seeking now. Um, so like I said, winding path for those lessons. Uh, but I think each you know, internship, interaction, job, volunteer role, in fundraising brought me to, I think, a lot of what I then apply for grants because so many people in grants have multiple fundraising hats they have to wear. And so I'm trying to translate their best practices into grants as well. When you look back at your early stages, what stands out as one of your greatest lessons learned from a mistake that you've made in the past? (laughs) Which mistake to pick? There have been plenty to learn from. I think that one of the mistakes I made, if I could classify it as one, was maybe the misunderstanding for how, especially in the grant field, 
how relationships are critical. It makes sense to us in the fundraising field that when we're asking individuals for funding, that there's some sort of relationship there. But grants, even having been a grant maker, grants are relationship driven, even though it is, yes, about filling out forms and yes, writing narrative that fits within the requirements of the grant maker. But I think I discounted the value of the relationship. And so I think that big picture was a mistake that has played out and I've worked very hard to correct early in my career and now focus on teaching people about that idea so that they don't make that same mistake that I made when I was young and naive. And in 2006, you left working as part of a fundraising team and you started your own grant writing services consultancy. Why did you want to go out on your own? goes back to that young and naive answer, doesn't it, I think? Um, I wanted to go out on my own because when I was a grant maker, so when I worked for a foundation full-time, I had a board of directors and an executive director that were really supportive about providing technical assistance to those that were applying, which meant I could answer their phone calls and talk to them. I could answer their emails, try to help them put forward the strongest application possible. And I really had loved that part of my work. But then I was an employee and seeking grants in other organizations. And I decided, you know, I'd like to go back to that idea of helping multiple organizations that really, it fueled me to have these different conversations. Yes, within the same bucket of a mission, but I loved helping multiple organizations at one time. And so I decided that if I opened the consultancy that really I was a freelance writer at that point. I wouldn't have said entrepreneur or like big picture consultant, but um, I thought I can help multiple organizations at one time, make it so that grants were less stressful for them. And so that was kind of the idea behind the whole thing was that I could take that knowledge and apply it to many. At that point, it was very service driven, not so much education driven. Um, so by definition, is broadened a little bit for now how it is we can help others. And uh, I mentioned in the introduction that you've had so much success in your grant writing applications for nonprofit organizations, I believe more than 60 million um, US dollars in competitive uh, grant funds. And when a team approaches you for your services in this area, how do you assess if an organization is ready to submit successful grant proposals? And how do you find the appropriate opportunities for them? Hmm. Such a big, important question. So it definitely sounds like industry jargon, but we call it grant readiness. And so we have a proprietary tool that we released a number of years ago. It's been published in the Grant Professionals Association Journal. It's called the GRASP tool. And it's a 10 minute questionnaire that organizations can take and there's no charge to them for it. And then it gives us an actual metric related to their grant readiness. There in the field have always been different grant readiness checklists or assessments that professionals or consultants will use to assess those big things. Uh, do you understand the value of relationships? Do you have strong procedures in place? Um, do you, you know, think about not just applying for money and creating something because the money's there? Are you applying because it's aligned with your mission? So the tool looks at a wide variety of things, including what I've just outlined, and gives a metric so that organizations can understand, oh, I scored a 52. 
probably some work to do. Or, oh yes, I scored an 82. I'm not just ready for foundation grants. I'm probably in a good state for maybe some government grants too. So we use that to help us assess because what we find is that sometimes organizations, they're so passionate and well-meaning that they don't under, they can't look inward enough to understand what might be a spot that a grant maker would question um, that might ultimately decrease their competitiveness. The whole point is if you're going to apply, we want you to spend your time applying in a way where you'll be successful. That goes to your question about how do you find the right opportunity? So if you have the right understanding of your grant readiness, whether it's the staff or the board, if you're scoring in a place where maybe government grants aren't quite right for you yet, well, we're not in the state databases. We're not in grants.gov looking for federal money. We're focusing instead on foundation grants because maybe that's where you're best suited right now. So our team uses a wide variety of tools. There's many that are available. Um, and it just really depends on the type of organization for how you use them to figure out what's best. So tools aside, type of organization aside, when you're doing the grant reach, what we find is really helpful to figure out what's best for you is that, I don't know if I had sunglasses, I'd say take the rose colored sunglasses off, right? You know how sometimes you wear sunglasses and you're like, it's all beautiful. Don't wear those when you're doing grant research. It doesn't help. You wanna be very judgmental. Is this really a fit for me? So again, regardless of tool that you're using, whether it's foundation directory online or grant station, or like I said, there's so many. You need a grant maker that their mission, the reason they exist and they give money sounds like you. Like, wow, so much like us, it's very parallel. And then you wanna look for a, a grant maker that is looking for potential new funding partners. So there's lots of leaders that say that they have funds available and while their mission might align to yours, they say, we don't accept unsolicited proposals. So my biggest advice when you're in that situation, when you're in the different databases is when you find those grant makers that say they don't accept unsolicited proposals, put it down, walk away. That's not worth your time. It takes so much relationship development effort in order to get an invitation to even have them consider you. You'd be better spending your time applying to all the others that are willing to accept proposals, still doing relationship development, but you'd be better off spending your time there because they, they want to see proposals from organizations like you. The others just don't have the capacity or the preference. And so you should set them aside while you develop your grant seeking strategy. So there's a whole lot more in terms of the technical, how do you use the tool and how do you prioritize them on a grant calendar? But I think in terms of universal advice, that's probably the biggest thing I can say. And once you've found those, um, those perfect matches uh, in terms of where you go and seek funding from, what goes into the process of creating successful grant proposals and who needs to be involved? Hmm. So each application will look really different because each grant maker, they have a different reason that they exist. So they create the process in a way that works for them. So when you think about, again, some kind of universal advice that works for grant makers, I would say that you remember who you are and what your program design is, and then translate it to the grant maker. Don't create something new in order to complete the application because it's gonna be stressful to create it under the pressure of a deadline and it's gonna be very stressful to implement 
if you weren't exactly right in what you created, you'll be mission drifting. So when we think about the application, yes, really strongly written narrative is important. But bigger picture, did you tell a story? Did you engage them in your work? Did you give them smart objectives? Right? So specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. If you don't do that in your objectives, your reviewers have questions. They won't understand what you're measuring or what time period you're presenting this program in. And so when they have questions, they don't want to advocate for you. They don't open their checkbook. They don't write you the grant award. So when we think about then our strong applications, let's go to that team part that you asked about. This is why we use a grant team. You're usually not going to see grant team on an org chart in a nonprofit or in an NGO or a charity, right? You don't find grant team as one of those items in the hierarchy, and that's okay. What a grant team is in our world, it's the group of colleagues that have a stake in seeing the grant be successful. So when we think about who that is, who should be involved to make the application competitive, to have that story written in a way that's successful, you wanna have someone from finance that's gonna help tell the financial story, make sure your budget has the right items. You want someone from programs. So whether it's a vice president of programs or a program director, but someone that can say what you're proposing is what we want to do. We can do what you're proposing. You should have someone from leadership involved. They're not gonna help necessarily write it, but they can say our vision, our mission is this, and the proposal that you're putting forward, it supports that. Ideally, if there's someone in the organization that's focused on evaluation, data collection, data analysis, having them as part of your grant team is really powerful. And then well, who else? Who would be maybe a fifth person? Grant teams are great if they're between three to nine people. So you might find different people filling multiple roles. At least kind of an open space for those that are passionate, those that are engaged in the idea and opt in. They say, I can help, I've got some information. Maybe they really enjoy copy editing or they enjoy writing, they enjoy storytelling. So they have a skill set that's going to come in. And the grant writer, we usually say grant professional because it's so much more than writing, but the grant professional is the one that facilitates that team. And it could be that they facilitate that team for one application a year, 12 a year, or that they just have the strategy conversations like this is what we think we're going to apply for and then engage different people out of that group as needed. But so when we think grant team, I think dream team, what are the skills that would come together to put together these complicated grant applications that honestly, I mean, you can have a great writer on their own and they'll write wonderful proposals, no doubt. But if you have a great writer and an engaged grant team, you're gonna to put together proposals that are gonna knock it out of the park, that are gonna be the ones that get funded. And that's why your success rate goes up and the dollars raised for the organization follow. Yeah, I can't come, uh, help but come back to that uh, 60 plus million that you've helped raise and <laughs> it's incredible amounts. So when you've got the dream team together, what have you found are some simple techniques that grab the attention of the potential funder? Right. So if we're thinking about how we hook our grant makers, how do we get them engaged? How do we get them to want to either learn more or to say yes? So since each grant maker is reviewing the proposals and making judgment in a different way, 
Some are doing it in a consensus discussion-based way. Others, maybe more government style, are scoring it. So it's about a rubric and you're trying to score at the very, very top. So again, as universal as possible, what are some techniques? So this is gonna sound like forehead slap style. Answer the question. If a grant maker asks you a question and it should be, you know, bullet number two, item number one, answer it. Give them a visual cue of what you're about to answer so that they're not searching for that answer or they're not saying, what was the goal for that project? I couldn't find it. I read all 10 pages. What was it? So use their application format and their questions and visually create a way that the reviewers, the grant maker, can find that answer. That's what's important to them. That's how they're going to judge you. So you want to make sure they can find it. So that's one tip. Another is to use storytelling, which is a really common technique in other elements of fundraising too. So whether it's that you share a quote from a client or a community member that's received uh, the benefit of your services, or whether it's you go even big picture, broader than that, and instead of being one specific story, you say the application itself is a story. Tell the story of the work you do, of the impact you create. Because if you're not careful and you're answering those questions like I described in tip one, where you're saying, here's the question, here's the answer, if you're not careful, it feels bland. It feels almost robotic. Here's your question, here's your answer. And yes, I, I just told you to do that. But on the other hand, make sure that you're telling the whole story, that you're connecting the dots and that all those questions build so that they understand, they being the grant maker, that they understand why you do what you do. How do you do it? Why are you the best one? I like to tell people, why are you, tell me why you're a rock star. Every nonprofit, every NGO, every charity, they have a reason that they're a rock star. Sometimes they just forget to have that be conveyed in their grant application because they get stuck in tip one, answer the question directly. And there's no question that I found yet from a grant maker that says, why is your organization a rock star? They want you to tell them, but they don't ask it quite that way. So you've got to find, make your organizational capacity statement, make it exciting, tell them great things. So those are some of my key tips. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure that relates uh, largely to the next question as well. But what are some of the most common mistakes that you've seen when it comes to fundraising teams uh, submitting their grant proposals? It's not even about what they write. I'll get all sorts of well-intentioned phone calls or emails. Diane, can we look at what we've written? I think we need to reapproach the way we write grants. Help us strengthen our written work. And I'll say, oh, hold on, before we get to the writing, because the writing actually isn't usually the issue. So before we get to the writing, let's focus on some of the other things in our grant life cycle. So let me show you real quick what I mean by grant life cycle. So when we look at what this means, remember how we talked about grant readiness up here at the top? Then we do our research, we talked about tools. Then there's relationships. Writing's all the way over here before we get the money and report. That's the fourth item in the life cycle. So where are people making mistakes? They're skipping to writing. They're missing all those initial steps of the life cycle. They're not thinking about their readiness. They're not spending enough time in whatever tool, digging in, doing due diligence to say, does this grant maker really align with me? 
do the previous grantees, do they look something like me? I'm, am I the right type of organization? For example, if I'm a healthcare system and I'm applying for something, but they've never funded healthcare systems before, what they fund in health are community organizations. I don't look like them. The odds they're gonna fund me are pretty small. So really, again, take those rose-colored sunglasses off. <laughs> and then lastly, where are they really maybe making a mistake? They're not spending time on the relationship development before they write. So when we think about writing being the fourth, what you learn in research, what you learn in relationships is informing your writing. And then your great writing skills, that can be how you move it forward. But I find a lot of organizations feel that the grant makers either don't have the time or don't want to hear from them. And so they skip either because they don't think they want to, or maybe they're under the pressure of a deadline. They skip that outreach. And so I like to coach people in what it sounds like when they reach out. So when you pick up the phone, because I'm old school, right? You can't read between the lines on an email. You're buried in their inbox. Even if they're working remotely, they're probably going to check their voicemail or maybe it gets forwarded. But I love it when people pick up the phone because you can hear a grant maker's pause of, mm, I'm not sure, right? And you can take action. I'm like, so pick up the phone. This is like, like I said, if you, don't worry about your writing. Worry about, are you taking time for this phone call? Because when you do, and there's only three things in the talking points, it's really easy. Who are you? What do you do? Everyone's really good at that answer. As long as you don't tell them you're a nonprofit, when you were founded, what your full mission is, just quick. This is who I am. This is where I'm calling from. The second thing is you tell them based on what you researched, why are you a good fit? If you did your due diligence homework, you can quickly tell them in 30 seconds or less, why are you a good fit? And then lastly, you can ask them questions. So I call them thoughtful questions, things that you couldn't learn on their website or in their materials, but that will help you write a stronger application. So back to that life cycle, the circular diagram, the biggest mistake people make is that they're skipping all those steps and getting right to the fourth step of writing when hopefully I've made a case for why they should be using the free grasp tool. They should be using the tools, taking the rose colored glasses off and especially using those talking points I had just outlined. Then you sit down and your writing work feels, not that it'll ever be easier, that's not, right? That's always difficult, but it will be more fruitful. And so that's what's gonna bring the success that they want. Wow, that's a great answer. Um, great advice in there. So, Seeking out potential funders sounds like a time-consuming process, um, you know, going through it all. And that's why um, organizations need to uh, have people like yourself to rely on. So, I mean, what tools and resources are available to help speed up this process? Okay, so seriously, coffee. No, <laughs> not seriously, right? There's so many tools. Even when you use the tools, there's so much information that it's overwhelming. And so you have to, I think in some ways, create parameters for how you do research. And so, for example, I mentioned there's many tools, but one is Foundation Directory Online. It's one that a lot of US-based nonprofits utilize because yes, you can pay for it and it does cost a little bit, but it's one that has free network locations. So nonprofits can go to like their local library or a university and go use this great tool for free. 
there's GrantStation. They've got an international search component. Like I said, there's so many tools, it's hard to even highlight them all. But regardless of which tool you're using, when you're doing the research trying to find the funders, set, and I was joking about the coffee, it's not actually about the caffeine that's in it that I prefer. It's actually about how long does it take you to consume the coffee? Or here, maybe instead, I'll channel some of my colleagues that focus on hydration. How long does it take you to get through the water bottle? So when you sit down to use the tools, instead of going down the rabbit hole and being there for hours, set a timer, get a fresh cup of coffee, get a new full water bottle, and use that as your gauge that you've dug in as deep as you're going to in that day. And if you do something like that, you could set time aside. Maybe it's how you start your week. So it's how you start your Monday mornings. You dig through all the emails that have come in from colleagues or from newsletters. Maybe you spend a little bit of time in the database digging deeper into some of those that really interest you. Or maybe it's how you wrap up your week and you spend one hour every Friday after lunch doing your research. And that helps to populate the rest of your calendar for the year. It doesn't mean you're always gonna find one that you like. But rather than let it be sort of the black cloud over your head, like I need to spend more time on research. Creating a habit. I love to talk about Gretchen Rubin and how you create habits and it takes a lot of time. So if you can create a habit, if you can create space on your calendar, not a ton of space, like I said, just maybe it's an hour or maybe it's the coffee cup rule. Some people drink faster, so maybe it's 45 minutes. Some people let theirs get cold. Maybe it's an hour 15 big picture if you use that as an approach to constantly focus on your research on the things that are being sent to you or that you're proactively finding you'll continue to build a really great grant strategy so for any organizations new to this area of raising funds for the organization why is it important to be focusing on grant applications as part of your fundraising strategy right now mm. so i would actually argue so not all organizations need grants to be successful. Grant money is very slow money. I would argue sometimes it feels like watching paint dry in terms of how slow it is, it's very slow. But grants can do some amazing things. So for organizations that are able to look forward on the calendar and plan in the future, so can think six months out, 12 months, 24, especially if we're thinking multi-year grants, what you're doing is saying, here's what I'm gonna do for the next three to five years. So if you're a very forward-looking group and can pro propose a plan that that grant team is supportive of, if you can do that in a way that you're still managing day-to-day -day operations with your other areas of fundraising, the bequest revenue, the special events, the individual appeals, if you can maintain your general operations with those types of fundraising, grants can help you expand your programs. They can help you pilot new ideas. They can give you a little bit, I, I caution using the word sustainability because sometimes one-year grants start something and then when it's over, done. But those multi-year grants give a little bit more sustainability to some of the big ideas. So when used carefully, Grants can really help diversify an organization's fundraising as a whole and help them do great new programmatic things or expand something programmatically. But I, I do caution that it needs to be strategic. It needs to be careful because grant money, if not free money, there's always strings attached. 
right? You are promising to do something with that money. There's going to be accountability, reporting. And if you're not careful, those strings, sort of like marionette puppet strings, if you're not careful, they actually become like really thick ropes and your organization is now really bound to something that maybe wasn't right. So that's where the strategy piece comes in for just being careful for how you use them. What stands out as one of your greatest success stories from the past 15 years of consulting and uh, what went into making that a success? Oh my goodness, I have to pick one? <laughs> okay, um, that is really difficult because while you might say, well, let's talk about like maybe the really big awards, the one that have lots of zeros. Well, that could be one way to define like what's a great story or what's one of the successes. I actually think back to, uh, we've talked in our team and within other colleagues of the Grant Professionals Association, there's a hashtag called Grants Work. And it's a way that as grant professionals, we can throw it onto a story because you can see the grant funding and what it did. You can see the funding in action. You can see these great stories. And we actually had a blog series we did for a while as a team where we would talk about seeing grant funding in action. And so that's actually what comes to mind for one of like the great success stories. So I had helped a rel relatively small organization, less than $500,000 a year operating budget. I'd helped them secure funding for a new program called Save the River in the Schools. And it's one that's actually very personal to me. We're a national grant writing firm, international in some ways with our teaching. But this was a program literally in my backyard, in my own very small community. And I now serve actually on the board for that organization. And what they were doing was teaching school-aged children about the environment, about being good stewards of their environment. We live right on the St. Lawrence River, which is a huge freshwater river that is the outflow for the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean. And many of the children in the small rural communities along the river have never even been on it. They don't really understand. Like they know that it's the river, but they don't get what it looks like for the terns to nest or the ospreys, or they've never seen some of the beautiful fish that live in that river. And so this program teaches them in the class in a way that is aligned with the state curriculum and then actually puts them on a boat while they go on a field trip and go to the nature center and get to see this, what this river really is like in person. So it's a great story as we think about the money that's been secured and what's happened. But I also have children who have been impacted by the program. And so I got to be a volunteer on one of the boats when one of my daughters was in kindergarten. It's been a few years now. But when she was in kindergarten and you're helping put the orange life vests on the kids and they're like this, they've got basically no neck because they're getting their safety life vest on. And to watch them, they're like hanging out the window. You're like, stay in the boat. And they're like, wow, right? That just the awe that they had for this natural environment and to see it all come together, ooh, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it because that to me, that's the power of what grants can be. They weren't monstrous million dollar grants. They were distinct grants that helped an organization implement a program that was aligned with their mission and created huge impact in literally thousands of students' lives. It's over a thousand students a year that benefit from that program. So big story. Lots of goosebumps, but that to me, that's what the success is. And if you ask grant professionals that same question, they'd all have some sort of really like personal, they saw it, whether it was as personal as their children or their family or their friends being engaged, 
but they saw what the impact was that that money created. I think that's true actually of any fundraiser when they talk about the success. There's going to be some story where they see it and like the magic happens. Oh, that's a great story. And um, yeah, happening in your own backyard, as you say, must have been hugely rewarding. So great to hear that. Um, so moving away from uh, grant, your grant writing services now, you also started Agile and Nonprofits in 2018. And uh, you're a scrum trainer. This to many people will sound uh, uh, very foreign, but you can tell us about that shortly. But tell us briefly what an Agile framework is, um, what scrum is, what sprints are, and how this can positively transform fundraising teams for better results. Right, I know. So how do we do all that? So Scrum is a framework within Agile. So Agile is really a mindset. It's not talking about that we have to do yoga or some other form of exercise, right? It's a mindset that we can be adaptable, that we can be innovative. And so Scrum is one framework under the Agile umbrella. And I usually have to say Scrum in the nonprofit field. It, I promise it's not an acronym. We have plenty of those. Also, I usually will talk about how we're not talking about the starting formation for rugby. So folks in sports might get that, might not. But I'm like, nope, what we're talking about is a framework that is adaptable to all work situations. It's something that, yes, it comes from for-profits. And this isn't for-profits telling nonprofits how to operate better. That's not the point of it. The point is it's a framework which helps you in any team setting adapt, inspect and adapt and say, what are we doing? What are we doing that we really like that's going really well? What could we do that maybe could be a little bit better? And to iterate. And so sprints are the time frame that we're focusing on. What are we looking at for what went well and what could we do better? So our team, we do sprints of one week because that gives us 52 chances a year to say, what did we do this week that we delivered a value that went well? What could we do a little bit better? And how can we get better as a team? And nonprofits are all about retrospectives and how to improve and how did that work? And right, there's all this evaluation data about those we serve, but what about our own processes and our own team? So it's a framework that helps us deliver that value and the impact to the community but also focus on ourselves in a way that honestly helps us deliver more impact faster. So like I said, Agile is a big umbrella. So it's a mindset. There's the Scrum framework, there are others, but the Scrum framework is the one that I'm a trainer and that we present to nonprofits as a way that they can think about doing their work, regardless of their mission, regardless of whether we're talking to a fundraising team or a programmatic team or the leadership team, the framework is always exactly the same because it's the rule book and each organization is implementing their version, their playbook that's right for them. Have you seen resistance in organizations moving to a more agile approach or trying to implement Scrum? And why were they hesitant towards this change? Mm. So I've seen some resistance and it's, I think, mostly in part to the fact that nonprofits don't and shouldn't be told, you should operate more like a for-profit business. That feels just jarring to them. This works in the for-profit world, so it has to work for you. And so I think that that's sometimes the resistance because again, the origins of the Scrum framework come from software. So that's where there's a lot of case studies that they've been presented with. This is why you should do it, it worked here. But the reality is when they start to get into it, the resistance drops 
because we can present them with case studies where nonprofits have successfully used it. And what they see is that actually nonprofit language, their own mission statements, their own SWOT analyses process, their vision statements, they contain the language about inspection and adaption and improvement and impact. They're all there within it. And so this framework gives them a way to harness that in a easy to adapt iterative process. So really, like I said, I think the resistance has been more about, I have to learn like this thing. Do I need to buy a software? The answer is no, <laughs> I don't need to buy software for it. Uh, am I trying to learn new acronyms? Maybe just a few tiny little ones, but Scrum's not one by itself. And again, it's not about for-profits telling nonprofits what to do. Rather, actually the co-creator of Scrum, Dr. Jeff Sutherland, his wife was one of the first ones to try it out in a more nonprofit setting. Years ago, she used it in a church setting successfully. And so whether it's a church or a big healthcare system or a small nonprofit, like the one I told the story about with grants, it works in all those settings and it absolutely has nothing to do with, hey, this is what worked in for-profits, so we have to use it here. Rather, it's the natural tendency of nonprofits to adapt, to be stronger, to be better for their communities, that drive and that passion they have, it helps them harness that in a way that brings, honestly, empiricism to the table. Boards love to be empirical. It helps the staff and the leadership be empirical in their day-to-day -day decisions. How can a fundraising team explore this more um, to see if this approach through sprints or um, scrums and retrospects could work for them? Um, can they test it somehow? Yeah, so the whole idea is that you're, you're testing things in of itself. So you always have one hypothesis every week that you're going to test. Is it going to make us faster as a team or is it going to make us happier? So there's two ways within the framework that I have found nonprofits are willing to test it in a very low barrier to entry sort of way. The first is not at quarterly meetings, not at annual reviews, but on a weekly or bi-weekly or even monthly, if that's where they want to start, somewhere between one and four weeks, to stop and as a team sit down and start with a retrospective. Ask yourself what went well in the last week or the last two or the last four. What went well? What didn't go well? What could we improve? And pick one thing out of the what could we improve. We call it a Kaizen. And that's the one, it's a hypothesis, one thing that could make us better. It's our priority. Let's get it done and try it. Let's see how it helps. And then whether it's again, another week or another four weeks, let's do the same thing again. As I said, it's a very, this is a very natural tendency, the retrospective piece or whether they call them postmortems. There's lots of language for what it looks like in nonprofits. But if you're taking only one item, something that you could measure, something that you could reflect back on to say it created change, it created an improvement or it didn't. Now, instead of trying to do all the things, which is our, at least my personal natural tendency, do all the things all the time. Now I can't measure what worked, right? I have no idea because I did all the things, too many variables, change one thing. So that's a really, like I said, low threshold, low barrier to entry way that some nonprofits will try using Scrum or using an Agile idea. The other is actually, uh, when they think about sprints, many nonprofits realize that they've been exposed to the cadence of sprints 
I'm a runner. So to me, sprint analogies just come naturally. I'm like, I'm a distance runner. I'm all about the distance. Put me on a track running in an oval. And I'm like, oh, this is really hard work. But if I know I only have to go around it once at my max speed, however slow that might be, I know where the end is. And so the idea that in our work, we're sprinting towards, we're getting ready for the event, or we're sprinting towards the grant deadline. It's something that helps us understand the sustainable pace and how we, oh, that's done. Okay, now we get to walk for a half a lap and cool down before we have to go again, right? We can take a minute and breathe. That kind of resonates. Or nonprofits have learned, and many of our case studies actually through Agile and nonprofits have shown how it's external technology vendors that have exposed them to the sprints, how they have something of value that they provide feedback on, and that the next iteration they get is better. There's a great one with Salesforce as a way that they supported a nonprofit in one sprint, what they could produce. We talked with a firm called Cosmic before that they are more of a design and a branding uh, organization that works with nonprofits and municipalities. And so that's how a lot of nonprofits are being introduced to that idea of a cadence for providing something of value that can have feedback on it. Um, and a lot of nonprofits, they love it. They like that consistent time box. But again, that idea that you can only sprint for so long before you're like, whew, take a break. It, it takes the work, which is always pressure filled. And there's always a lot happening in the nonprofits. It gives it a spot where you're like, okay, this is what I'm sprinting towards. And I can pause. We could reflect. I can breathe. I can get some more water, <laughs> right? Um, so those are the two spots that we found that nonprofits Depends on the organization, but that they've enjoyed uh, exposure to Scrum and Agile. Yeah, that's a great example. And do you think of an organization doing this effectively right now? And what are the rewards that they've seen from this? Hmm. Again, you want me to pick one? There's so many. Um, as I think about all of the Scrum masters and product owners that I've trained, I mean, within the organizations, the stories are amazing for what they're creating just the way that they're harnessing the energy and creating impact. But we've got a lot of case studies that we've highlighted at Agile and Nonprofits that are actually on our YouTube channel. So folks, if they like this style interview, could go watch some interviews with those doing the work. So instead of hearing me talk about it, they can go watch them. My, I can't have a favorite, can I? Okay, so to answer your question, one though that I think is really a cool story is with, uh, it's called New Boco is the way that the shortened name, New Bohemian Collective. And it's an organization in Iowa. And it's an organization that was started using Scrum from the very ground up. And they started with a small team and they've grown to, I think it's about 19 or 20 people now. They've gone from a very small budget into the millions. They've gone from doing just a little bit of programmatic support for their community. It's focused on coding. Uh, the founder had had a great deal of experience using Scrum in the for-profit world, so brought it right in to now, and actually as a result of COVID, instead of doing many in-person things, they've started to expand into virtual learning, which has taken their work. And now instead of being confined by Iowa and the state boundaries, really more their city where they work, now, it's accessible to a lot of individuals. But to hear the way that they have helped the staff actually think about what's visual and how they work in a transparent way 
uh, one of the things and why we first learned about them was that they'd done a great article about making your work visible and how they have sprint boards and scrum boards everywhere. If we rotated the camera, you'd see I've got an idea lounge with a board and there's a rolling one over here and there's enough. Their office is the same way, making work visible. Now, of course, we've got a bunch of virtual tools, right? If we're not all together, or we're, we're remote. But that was one of the reasons we first found them. And uh, just thinking about all the different ways that making work visual can help your organization for transparency. Spoiler alert on the case study, because nonprofit people usually fall over when they hear this part. The salary information for the entire staff is completely transparent. Everyone, see, I saw your, you were like, that is a lot. And I said, how do people feel about that? I said, I think that more than the Scrum framework, more than using Agile in your nonprofit that you founded, I said, that's what's going to get a lot of questions. Eric, their CEO, is happy to answer questions about it. But the point is, everything about their work is visible. And so, anyway, that's my quick summary of it. Eric does a great job explaining it in this actual case study. But it's really cool to see how a nonprofit could go from the start to where they are now um, as an inspiration for others starting nonprofits now. You've achieved many great things in the work you do for nonprofit organizations. Um, what are you hoping to achieve in the next five to 10 years? Oh, well, I'm like, that's many, many sprints out. And so what I'll say is I've focused more on what our vision is as a team and what the specifics are of what we'll achieve. It's hard to say. Because if I look back five, 10 years later, I wouldn't have even predicted some of what we're doing now. But I can say that our vision in our work has remained the same. And I see that still as our through line. So I don't wanna let grants stress organizations out. And so that was the initial idea. And it's always played out in organizational capacity work. And so as I think about what's happening and where we're headed, I don't want to see grant stressing organizations out. I don't want to see uh, them reacting instead of being proactive. I want organizations to let their vision and their mission drive the way that they seek funds and the way that they interact as teams so that there are fewer silos, so that their work is more visible, that they're thinking more cross-functionally about how they can support each other in a way that creates more impact for their organization, ultimately for those they serve, right, for the reason they exist. Um, and so what that specifically looks like, I don't know, there's a lot to come. <laughs> and I think hopefully there's some more change in philanthropy that goes with it. And I think that having been both a grant maker and a grant seeker, I can say having experienced both, without a doubt, there's an imbalance in philanthropy. And it's one that colleagues who have a larger stage than I do will talk about in bigger ways. Lule is a great example um, of the imbalance and the expectations and how it, it's not what we want. That's not what we need in philanthropy. And I think there have been some shifts. So I would hope that if I think about what we will have achieved, that maybe it's that we've helped to influence that conversation in a way that still allows nonprofits to do amazing work never want to change that focus, but maybe also we can influence the dynamics of what it is between grant makers and grant seekers so that those dollars are creating more impact instead of being tied up in some of uh, the history of what they really have been before.
Oh, that's great. Well, um, I'd just like to quickly say we're just coming up to the last question, but um, Diane, thank you so much for coming on for Phil today and sharing your experiences and especially in grant writing and scrum training. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear it. It's um, something we haven't covered yet. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? Hmm. Find what you're passionate about within the field and run with it. It will always be stressful work because there's a lot of pressure. You're trying to achieve great things. And so find the work that makes you happy and go for it and reach out to others. Don't feel like you're alone. Don't feel like you are, you need to reinvent the wheel, network within the field, learn with others and be open to making mistakes, to trying new things. Uh, just be sure to keep some data along the way so that you're making empirical decisions about what worked and what didn't as you explore your work. Some folks roll their eyes when I'm like, I love grants. Oh, that's my passion. I have other colleagues who love individual donor work, major donors and individual appeals. Tom Her and Mark Pittman, right? Well, we all have our specialties. We all have our things. So learn from those who do things differently than you in terms of the, the subject matter, but also in style and see how that can influence the way you do your work. I think that'd be my biggest advice.